Hey y'all, I hope you are all doing well. Uh, it's your girl Naime here with Digging In With Naime. Um, I had recorded this episode already and then went to upload and for whatever reason it's gone. So <laughs> this is me trying to make up for what I lost and hopefully um, it's better than what I had lost. But you know what, that's alright. But uh, I first want to start and welcome everyone who is new. Welcome to my podcast, Digging With Naime. If you have been here before, welcome back, family, right? That's what you are now. You are now family. I hope you are all just doing well on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. It's Thursday afternoon now. I want to start uh, with, this is going to be one series, of the first series of a few where I'll be talking about Puerto Rico and my experience out there on the beautiful island. Uh, but first, as always, I want to start with um, the book I'm reading. This is book number seven, which I'm super excited about. It's called Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption by Brian Stevenson. I'm only on page 34, and y'all, it's amazing. Um, Brian Stevenson, if you do not know, is a lawyer who focuses on um, criminal law and just basically redeeming and uh, fixing the criminal justice system. His whole fight is for men and women and children who are on death row. Uh, he has won many cases, um, has also lost a few, you know, because that's life. But this man, Brian Stevenson, is just always fighting for the good of others. And if you are not familiar with him, he was on 13th, which is a documentary on Netflix by Ava DuVernay that focuses on the 13th Amendment, um, which is about slavery. And so the book so far is really amazing. He's talking about a man that he is fighting for who is currently on death row. Well, not currently, like now, in 2019. I'm not going to give away what happens to him because I don't fully know. But um, <laughs> during when he wrote the book, uh, he was uh, fighting for a man... Um, who was on death row. Walter McMillan is the young man's name, and he was sentenced to die for a notorious murder that he did not commit. And so, as many of us know, this happens in uh, the black community where a lot of black men or women accused of crimes that they did not commit, or also they're accused of crimes um, that are not necessarily felonies or uh, in any capacity harmful to others, or even like a crime that um, makes them violent, right? So it's nonviolent crimes a lot of time that black people are accused of, and sometimes they will end up in jail because of it. Excuse me, sorry, not jail, but prison for many years, right? There are many people who are also on death row currently who are sitting, waiting for their trial, um, waiting for it to be executed, as crazy as that sounds, who are in prison waiting on a non-violent charge, meaning that whatever they were charged for, um, whether it be like possessions of drugs or even maybe holding a gun or, or maybe robbery or, um, I don't know, you can also have like the, like a nuance, right? A nuisance or something like that. Like those crimes are non-violent, right? Um, now they can end to violence, but some of them are nonviolent and they're in prison right now. Possibly being executed, possibly about to be executed. 
And so it's crazy how our justice system works. If you've ever heard me talk about the justice system, which I do very often, uh, I'm actually against our criminal justice system. I do believe that we need to abolish it. I personally do not believe in the prison system. I personally do not believe in prisons in general. I do not believe that human beings should be encaged and imprisoned, uh, especially for long lengths of period. I do 100% believe that we should be, um, we should be able to give people uh, reconciliation and, and allow people to um, have therapy and other mechanisms to help them to gain, go back into society and help them to basically fight through the trauma. I believe a lot of the reasons why we do a lot of things we do is because of traumatic experiences in our life. Um, also, thinking of it in a biblical per, uh, perspective is also because of sin, right? Because of sin, we do the things we do. Um, but now taken into a natural sense, I also believe that a lot of things we do is because trauma, which also has to do with sin. But nonetheless, I believe that we should be giving, uh, we should be getting people to reconcile and to go back into society. And I don't think that we should be imprisoning people. But that's just my personal belief. A lot of people don't believe that, and that's fine. Um, but that's the things that I like specifically love to fight for, for, for that, the, the honest opinion of, the honest that I believe um, is that like that we just don't we should not be in prisons that people over time if they're not able to forgive and be forgiven and actually seek restoration and seek um, truth that they're never gonna move forward and so that's what I think can change I don't believe in the prison system but I want to share a part of his book with you specifically now the reason Walter McMillan, again, not trying to give away too much, but the reason why he is even in prison, which he spends, I, be, ooh, I don't even know how many years, but um, this book, I believe, was written in 2014. Um, it doesn't say, yeah, 2014. It was, it was written in 2014, and so he was in prison. Uh, he went in around the 1980s. So in the 1980s was when Walter McMillan ends up getting arrested and they don't necessarily say why he gets arrested just yet I'm not in that part yet but the part that I'm in is setting up this the setting is setting the tone and it's talking about uh in the 19 well it's talking about laws about interracial marriage and interracial relationships and so Walter who is married a married man um is married to, to a black woman but he ends up having uh, multiple other affairs and they've all been with other black women, except he finally meets one white woman that he decides just catches his eye. Um, and he ends up, she ends up luring him in. Now, the thing is, Walter is a married man. And this woman is also a married woman. She's married to a white man. And so in the 1980s, a black man who's married to a black woman and a white woman who's married to a white man are coming together, right? The white woman and the black men are coming together and they begin to create this bond and this relationship uh it doesn't necessarily say whether it was a sexual or romantic relationship but we can draw the opinion that that's what it was because the woman's husband ends up getting very upset that she's spending all this time with a black man so um in the 1980s in alabama this is where the state's taking place uh they were not <laughs> Um, it was very prohibited to practice, quote-unquote, interracial relationships. Um, 
there's a part I want to read to you. Now, I want, I want to also add that a lot of times in society, we see inter, interracial relationships as black and white, right? Now, in my case, I am black and Mexican. So the interracial relationship between my parents, a black man and a, and a Mexican woman, right? So that, so already that's like showing that it's not just black and white. The interracial relationships are, are more than just black and white. But to this case, it's specifically in the 19th, and I mean, in, in our history, looking at our history as a very black and white history, if we want to simplify it as to that, that's what it's referring to. It's referring to white people versus black people. Now, the, what I'm going to read, it says, it wasn't until 1967 that the United States Supreme Court finally struck down anti-miscegenation miscegenation, <laughs> statutes in Loving versus Virginia, but restrictions on interracial marriage persisted even after that landmark ruling. Alabama's state constitution still prohibited the practice in 1986 when Walter met Karen Kelly. Section 1 and 2 of the state constitution read, The legislator shall never pass any law to authorize or legalize any marriage between any white person and a Negro or a descendant of a Negro. So that was in 1986, and that is law. That is the state constitution of Alabama where it was not legal. And not only was it not legal, but they also made it very clear that they shall never pass. Now, as you see, we're in 2019, and there's a lot of laws um, that have changed, but there's also still a lot of laws that are still the same. Moving forward, though, there's a footnote that says, even though the restriction couldn't be enforced under federal law, the state ban on interracial marriage in Alabama continued into the 21st century. In 2000, reformers finally had enough votes to get the issue on the statewide ballot, where a majority of voters chose to eliminate the ban, although 41% voted to keep it. A 2011 poll of Mississippi Republicans found that 46% support a legal ban on interracial marriage, 40% oppose such a ban, and 14% are undecided. Yo. That's crazy, right? The reality of 41% of Republicans specifically, I'm sorry, I, I, I misspoke. That's for Mississippi. 41% overall of people voted to keep the, the bill. They voted to keep that ban. They wanted to keep it. They wanted to keep, it's illegal to have an interracial marriage. And that's crazy when you think about it. That's crazy. It wasn't until 2000 that they were finally able to get it on the ballot because of enough votes. Now, if you any if you know anything about how to get uh, things on ballots and votes, now each law, is all, excuse me, each state is also different. So I know to Arizona's extent, but the reality is that it takes a certain amount of votes. It takes a certain amount of signatures. It takes a certain amount of people to decide to get something on a ballot. And for years, they were not able to. It wasn't until 2000 that they were actually able to. But then it also took some time to vote it in to pass. And that's just crazy, especially as a woman who... Now, I do not consider myself biracial or um, multiracial. Like, I don't identify that as that. Uh, but nonetheless, that that is what, if we break it down, that is what I am. And it's just crazy to know that it was illegal at one point for my parents to be married. Not only was it illegal at one point for my parents to be married, but it wasn't a thing because my mother is not white, right? And and the law constitutes specifically for white and black people. And so it wasn't even a thing. My mother wasn't even a thought. My parents weren't even a thought. They didn't care. 
And so imagine, like, I just imagine in Alabama in 1986, which my, I'm born in 93, okay, 1993. So just thinking about during that time, what that looked like for my parents, that's crazy to me. I also want to add another part that um, I remember, and I don't know if I made this up. I don't know if this is like something, I, I don't know. Uh, I actually should ask my father about it, but I do remember very clearly being at a store as a child. Um, so my father's a black man and me and my siblings are very, very light skinned. Uh, first off, we are just light skinned in general. Like we're extremely light skinned. Like you would not, if it honestly, people say what people say, um, you can tell that I have like some features, but also if it wasn't for my hair, you wouldn't be able to tell that I was black. Right. People say that. Okay, fine. Cool. But, um, the reality is that I remember one time being at a store with my father and this woman approaching us and asking me if I belonged to him. Asking me who he was to me. And I don't remember everything that happened. Because again, I don't even know if this is true, right? This is just a memory I have. So I, I've either heard this from somewhere else or like this actually happened to me. But I just remember my father looking at her and my father's a very like, he will tell you what's up. He's that type of dude. Like he ain't going, he's not shy. He's not quiet. He'll let you know what's up. But I just remember him looking at this woman and trying to answer and her like telling him to stop talking, like basically putting her hand like up to stop talking. And then her addressing me again and asking me. And I don't remember what happens after this. I don't know like what it looked like after, but I just, I, I have this very vivid like idea of, of this of, of this happening so actually I should probably ask my dad if that's real or not because I definitely remember it happening I just don't I don't know right if it happened to me or maybe I heard it from somewhere else I don't know but nonetheless um the reality is that like that was I was born in 93 right so that was like late 90s no if I could if I have memories of it then it was probably like it has to be after four years old so by then, I'm definitely the late 90s, 99, 2000, 2001, right? And like, even then, like, that was the reality of that these things happen. Now, people try to say that we are so removed from slavery. Uh, that's false, right? I can go back, I believe, I believe four generations, maybe five generations within my family, within my father's family, um, that were enslaved, right? So five generations ago from me, was enslavement in my in my family isn't that crazy like that's crazy five generations ago that's not that long ago um right now on my father's side of the family there's four generations alive so my great grandmother is alive still so if she's the me two three four it would be her parents that were enslaved right like that's crazy to me but people try to say that we're so far from from slavery they were so removed from it. They were so far, far from it. And it, we just celebrated 50 years of the civil rights movement. What, last year? Like, what? Like, we're not that far removed. We're not. And so I just wanted to add that in there. And I wanted to share that little piece of information with you. Thanks, guys. So I want to talk about Puerto Rico. Like I've said before, this is going to be one of a few series on just my experience in Puerto Rico and, and especially the experience leading up and the experience of it afterwards. 
I want to first thank everyone for donating, everyone for the prayers and the well wishes. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I appreciate you believing in the work that God is doing within me and around me. I appreciate you believing in me. Like that means a lot to me, especially for the non-believers, for the people who do not believe in God, yet still donate it. Like that's powerful. To me, that's saying that you believe in me. You believe in the mission that I feel I'm called on. You believe in my purpose. And that is just so powerful. And I just, I felt the support. So thank you so much for that. Um, One thing I want to share is about the guilt I felt uh, before going. So as many of of you know, I left my job in March, and so I've been pursuing my craft full-time, pursuing this nonprofit I started full-time, as well as doing some consulting, and I'm interning for an organization, and then I'm doing social media for another org. Um, And so the money just doesn't, it just doesn't look like what it used to, realistically. I'm not making as much. Um, If anything, my bills are now surpassing what I am making, And so there's this reality that I've been really relying on the Lord. I've been hustling and bustling and like, believe me, I've been trying, but I've been relying on the Lord to just, you know, to, to meet me where I'm at and to fulfill his promises. And so in the process of deciding I'm going to Puerto Rico and I had a month to raise funds, I was really unsure if it's what I wanted to do. I was really unsure if I was called to it. Um, I was really kind of afraid and very fearful. And that was because I thought, and I felt very unworthy, but I thought in my head, how can I, who can barely pay her bills on time, even think of going across the world? I mean, yeah, across across my world, right? Because it's on the east side of the world. Now I'm over here on the west side, kind of, sort of. But how could I even think about going out and asking other people for money and like participating in something like this and so for a long time I want to say the first three weeks I think it it took me it took majority of the process of me fundraising for me to like finally just get over the guilt but the whole time I just felt guilty I felt so guilty like who am I to think that this is what I can do who am I to think that this is um, that I'm so special or I'm abnormal or whatever. Like, who am I to really think that this is something I should be doing? And it took a lot of me um, literally, literally on my knees, praying and seeking the Lord and like helping me overcome this, this doubt that I had in my head and in my heart. I, uh, Philippians 4 and 6, just is consistent, was consistently my prayer, right? It says, Um, do not be anxious about anything, but in all things through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace that surpasses all understanding regard your hearts in Christ Jesus. And so that's a scripture. I just like, I memorize a scripture because I just every day was consistently praying this over myself. Like, do not be anxious about anything. Right. But through everything, present my request to God, right? Allow, give it to him, give it to the Lord and allow his peace that doesn't make sense to other people, that doesn't make sense to me sometimes will just be in my heart. And I just continue to pray over that. And there were some days that were easier than others and other days that were harder, but I just continue to pray that over my life. And then I was able to then have peace of like, you're going, you're going to Puerto Rico and that this is it. That's it. You're going. And God proved himself so faithful 
because he not only provided for me to go to Puerto Rico, but he was he also provided for me to pay my bills. I was able to pay my bills. My bills are paid for. And that was nothing but God. Because, I, man, when I tell you I was out there hustling, yes. But at the end of the day, even with what I made, I'm, I was still shocked that I made as much as I'd had. Like, I wasn't expecting to have as much as I did for my bills. And it was just... It was, it was crazy. It was crazy. I saw the Lord move and it was just a beautiful thing to be a part of. And I'm so grateful for that experience because I was able to fully say, I saw God as my provider. Um, and I made a commitment in 2016. And I know many of you have heard me say this before, but I made a commitment in 2016 that I was going to go wherever the Lord sent me. And so in Isaiah six, right? I always talk about Isaiah six, Isaiah six, God says, who do we send? right? To tell people about, um, well, specifically to tell people to repent because it was during Isaiah's time. But I made a commitment to the Lord that I will go out and go wherever he sent me and I would do the uncomfortable things uh, for him, right? I, w- I would be called wherever he's called me to and I would go out boldly and proclaim the love of Christ, pr- proclaim that God is near. That's the things that I committed to. And so I made that commitment and I really believe that the Lord was honoring that commitment and providing for me. Right. He was honoring me in my commitment and he provided for me to go. But not only that, but he wanted me to go. There was a purpose for me. I, I'm excited to tell you all the purpose of, of, of what I received or what I saw there. Um, but all that was it needed to be done. And so I'm just so humble and I'm so grateful uh, to have been a part of the team I went on and just to be a part of that and to be able to experience what I experienced. I'm so humbled by y'all like those who donate those who well wished um I had a few people hit me up since I've been back asking me to grab lunch with them they want to talk to me about my trip and just different things they want to see what's up and they want to like um feed off of my head and just see what I'm doing and see what's happening within me and all this stuff and I just am so grateful and I appreciate it and the reality is like I couldn't have done any of that without God but I also couldn't have done any of that without your obedience without you deciding in your heart that you were going to to give i couldn't have done it without you and so it's a team effort right um following god is is, is, while while it's a heart commitment it's a self-individual commitment but the walk is a team commitment right the walk is a community commitment it takes people to to push and pull and feed into someone in order for you to continue your walk and i just want to thank you guys all for that uh yeah thank you thank you thank you thank you Thank you. Um, so I want to, I mean, that's kind of it. That's all I have for you. That's all I have for today's episode of Digging In with Naime. Um, I'm really excited to be back. It's good to be back. I'm excited. I know, again, today's episode is a little late, so I do apologize. But expect next week for us to be rolling again and at 12 p.m. every Thursday. Y'all, thank you for listening. I hope you peace, love, sanity, right? I hope uh, I hope there's joy in your life and all the above. And yeah, thanks for listening, y'all. Peace. <laughs>